There was a very popular celebrity that came and graced our movie theater just down the road over here. You might have heard about it. It was not all over the news like everyone was following it, but the paparazzi was taking photos and doing what they normally do. And it was at our very Aliso Viejo Town Center where the famous celebrity um, came with his wife. And that's, there they are. <laughs> right there. <laughs> they were uh, apparently wearing an invisibility cloak and thus made it difficult for you to see who that was. But uh, this celebrity is, of course, one. And at this point, the, 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 the guy is no longer cool to say that you like, unless you're people like my age, in which case we no longer care what you think anymore. So we just say that we're fans of this person. Uh, but what was interesting to me was that it made its way all across different avenues of social media. Um, I personally found out about it from Matt Daniels' Instagram feed. Um, Cameron Richards was also pretty excited about this. And as you can tell, um, these massive fans of Justin Bieber were stoked that he was sitting on our seats with his wife. I don't know her name, but she was there. People were really excited about, so much excited about it that they took videos of him actually walking out of the theater. That's the, that's the guy. That, those are our stairs. <laughs> and there's his bodyguard behind him. Uh, there's him standing at those very stairs. There's people that are excited about him standing there. She was really excited. <laughs> Actual footage from Cameron Richards' Instagram here. That's what was going on right in that, in that section. <laughs> uh, but as you can see, oh, no. Here we go. As you can see, people are really pumped about, about, about celebrities, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Um, the, the fact is that there's, uh, there's celebrities that we all get excited about. I mean, I'm sure if someone who you admire walked in the door, you might get all giddy, get the butterflies in the tummy, and, you know, get all like, woo, there he is, there she is. In fact, I got that way when Dr. Moeller came the first time. <laughs> it's one of my celebrity, one of my heroes. I still haven't talked to him because I'm afraid to say anything dumb. Like, hello, Mr. Moeller, sir. And then accidentally spout heresy. You know? <laughs> Jesus is just a man. You know? Ooh, I don't know what he said. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, nothing wrong with having celebrities, but there's a celebrity in our lives that you and I should constantly align our minds to and be excited about for one thing, which is why we're studying the gospel of Mark. I'm so excited about this because Mark gives us an opportunity to put our hearts and our minds and attention on the biggest celebrity in the known universe, the, own and, the, the known and unknown for that matter. The celebrity that, of course, I'm talking about is Jesus Christ, which is why we're going to study him for basically the rest of this entire school year. We're going to spend the first half working through the, the bulk of Mark with a few brief, um, I don't know, rest points where we go through a Thanksgiving thing and then a Christmas thing, of course. Uh, and we're going to go, we'll do Revival Winter Edition, which I'm already plotting and planning. Um, but then we're going, to, we're going to finish the Gospel of Mark, so help us God, and talk really about who Jesus is and why he's so important to us. He is, after all, why we're named Christians, Jesus Christ. So, uh, we're going to go through the Gospels uh, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, excuse me. We're not going to go through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to look specifically at Mark. Each Gospel has a different intention. For instance, um, each Gospel could be thought of as a different portrait of the same person. If I were to ask you, okay, uh, here's Evan the Romantic. Um, this is Evan in his most romantic state. His heart is melting inside of him. His eyes are probably shedding copious amounts of tears. And there is his beloved bride. 
I could also show you Evan the Mormon and ask you, is Evan the Mormon any less real than the one you just saw? I could also show you Evan the, whatever this is, <laughs> Evan the, the guy, <laughs> or I could show you Evan the future father. <laughs> and I could say to you, are any one of those portraits of Evan any less real or less true than the others? And of course, the answer is no. These are all the same guy. They're just different portraits of the same guy, different uh, pictures and, and visions of who he is. And in this case, this one's black and white where he's making a little baby cry. So <laughs> the Gospels work a lot like the same. Um, they're four strands of the same cord. They each tell a different aspect of who Jesus is, and they each have a different theological persuasion. They're each trying to convey something different to you. So as we work through the Gospel of Mark, what you need to understand is that Mark's intention uh, is to really show you Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the suffering servant, Jesus, the one who would sacrifice himself for our sins. And in reality, you get a really human picture of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. It's very fast-paced. In fact, Mark, uh, John Mark, the one who's attributed as writing this text, is supposed to be a, an apostle excuse me, a disciple of the apostle Peter. He's the one who was trained up under his ministry. And in fact, many scholars and church history states that uh, the gospel of Mark is really Peter's gospel. It's from his preaching. It's from Peter's uh, life and experience with Christ. And so Mark takes it, summarizes it, and packs it up in a very fast-paced, action-oriented gospel. Gospel of Mark uses a word, euthus. And that word, euthus, means immediately or at once. Uh, and that word is meant to carry the gospel uh, forward really quickly. Like I said, it's an action. If you, would, if you would take this gospel and put it into a genre, it would be an action drama comedy, kind of like Lethal Weapon, I guess. <laughs> it was something like that where it moves along quickly. There's a little bit of humor inside of it, but there's a lot of action, and it's meant to kind of keep you on the edge of your seat. In fact, the gospel of Mark was written to Roman Christians. And so Roman Christians at this particular group of people were not very literate. And so he wasn't expecting people to sit down and read a long excursus on the gospel like you might expect a uh, for the Gospel of John, he was t talking to a, a group of largely uneducated, illiterate people. And so he's trying to give them a sense of this is what the Gospel is about in a nutshell, and it's fast-moving, rapid pace. With that said, um, the Gospel of Mark is short. It's the shortest of all of them, and perhaps the first Gospel to be written. We're starting to have a uh, new, uh, new understanding of who Mark is in terms of what his gospel does. And the current consensus is that Mark was probably the first gospel written as early as 40 AD, but as late as 70s. Uh, so there's a, there's a bit of speculation as to when exactly the gospel itself was written, but we know it was an earlier book, um, or at least that's what we currently see as, as we understand the text and the variants and all those things. With that said, let's jump straight away into Mark chapter 1, looking at the first three verses. Here's how he starts. And this is the title of the book itself. And in these days, there was no such thing as a cover page. You didn't have a title by author. So this is Mark's title. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, if you stop right there, the title itself tells you everything about the book that you're about to learn in all of the various anecdotes and the various, uh, the various chapters. It's the gospel. And he's not talking about his book is the gospel. It's the good news about Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. Interesting to note that the term Christ doesn't appear except for basically three times in the book. This time, the middle of the book in, in chapter 8, and then the end of the book. P uh, Mark does this to show you that these are, these are the peaks. This is the peak of what I'm trying to tell you. They're, they're highlights within the book itself. Uh, Jesus is the, the Christ, 
We'll talk about what that means. And he highlights it three separate times in the book itself. And he says, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. He's talking about John the Baptist here. This is the messenger who would go before Jesus to prepare Jesus' way and his ministry. That messenger is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, verse 3. And what's his message? Prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. That's what the messenger's saying to everybody. His response, his responsibility is to make sure that everybody knows that Jesus is coming. That's what this first thing's all about. But what you don't see, even in these few verses, is that there's so much richness in these first few verses that you might not catch in the first glance. For instance, the gospel means what? Good news. Christians hijacked that term. Did you know that? That term for good news was actually used when an a, a emperor or a king might uh, defeat another uh, enemy in a battle, and he would send euangelion, good news, glad tidings, to his people to say, hey, we won. There'd be, uh, there'd be someone who carries the message, and the euangelion, the gospel, was actually a plural statement. You would send glad tidings, right? Uh, good news of great joy, one might say. When an emperor or a king defeats his enemies in battle, he'll send a gospel out. Well, Christians hijacked that term and said, no longer is it plural good newses, it's good news, the good news of who Jesus Christ is. And then when, when uh, the book opens and quotes uh, the text of Isaiah, and we'll talk about who's actually quoting there. He's, he is quoting Isaiah, but he's also quoting somebody else. He's saying that this person who's about to come is, he says in verse 3, prepare the way of the Lord. This is a special person. Make his path straight. We'll look at that entire text and see that who he's talking about is someone inherently valuable. The VIP of VIPs. Essentially, Mark's giving you the appetizer and the teaser to say, who's coming is awesome. Be prepared. You ought to, number one, get excited about who Jesus is. That's Mark's intention. He's giving you teasers, taste tests, if you will, to say this is who you really ought to be excited about. This story is the story of stories. It's the meta narrative of all the things that we stand for. It's the reason we're here. It's all of our problems, our biggest problem, most specifically, solved in this person. You really don't see that just by a cursory reading of it, but that's where he's leading into. We get excited about a lot of things. Like, I, I got excited when, when I was on vacation. I got excited knowing that I was going to go to one of my favorite new restaurants called Slurpin' Ramen. Legit. It's in the city of commerce. You should try it. It's amazing. Um, if you think Hiro Nori is good or this uh, I-22 over here in the, in the town center is good, I mean, they're fine. They're McDonald's. This place over here is, is the steakhouse. So, uh, Hironori is good. Uh, I-22 is good, but uh, Serpent Ramen, amazing. Got really excited about that. Um, I also got really excited about, um, I used to be super excited about video games when I was, when I was your age. I'm actually a little younger than that. But if you, if you follow Fortnite, you know that Fortnite just had its recent uh, World Cup, World Championship or whatever. And the guy who won made how much money? Millions. Playing video games. I'm pretty sure he was excited. The people that were playing in that tournament were super excited as well. Well, we might get excited about our favorite artists. Uh, we might get excited about a certain subject in school. And there's a lot of things that we get excited about, and they're right and good and fine, but we should be excited about Jesus. And that's something that doesn't, it matures, obviously, but that kind of love for Christ and that, that, that excitement for him shouldn't dissipate. In fact, we should get excited by thinking about who he is and why that matters to us. First and foremost, let's answer the question who he is. He's Jesus the Messiah. And that's what the word Christ means. That's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. That is, Jesus comes as a savior. He's a deliverer. 
His, the title for Christos, the title Christos, means that he is the anointed one. He was set aside for a specific purpose uh, unto God. And, and that specific purpose is found in Matthew one twenty one. Write it down. His specific purpose is Matthew one twenty one. Jesus' first arrival uh, on the scene is for the purpose of saving people from their sins. That's, in fact, what his name means. Jesus, the Lord saves. Matthew one twenty one says, She will bear a son, Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, the application for you should be obvious. Jesus as the Savior, as the Messiah, means we have a remedy for our greatest problem, that our sins can be forgiven in Jesus Christ. Remember where you came from. Remember the sins that plagued your soul. Remember the shame that used to be yours before Jesus saved you. Jesus' suffering and death on the cross means that we can stand before God and no longer have to worry about all of the dark secrets that we used to hold inside. The cross told on you. The cross shouts, you're a sinner. The cross shouts that you're broken and are in desperate need of forgiveness. And so when we look at that, we realize that Jesus' value to us is not just that he is God, even though that he is, It's that he is the Messiah, the one who would suffer and die for our sins. Often we lose sight of that because we don't think a whole lot about our sins. We stop feeling the weight of our sins. You stop thinking about those things because often we ignore them. We we put them out of our mind. Uh, We might, in a very cursory way, say, Jesus died for my sin. I don't have to worry about that anymore. It's not my issue. And I guess that's true. But when it comes to really appreciating and getting excited about who Jesus is, it means you have to reconnect on a constant basis. I am a sinner who is in desperate need of a Savior. And I can say that even now personally, as a pastor, I'm a sinner who's in desperate need of a Savior. So many times we go through life without recognizing just how desperate we are and how dependent we are. You're dependent upon Christ for the very breath you take, but for so much more than you even realize. Do you want to get out of bed and be a Christian? You need Christ to to overrule your physical tendencies, your fleshly tendencies to depart from him. You guys know that hymn, uh, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, right? You guys know that hymn? Um, You don't know that hymn. Okay. Um, (laughs) It's it's an old hymn. (laughs) Uh, It's a popular one. You should listen to it. I don't know the name off the top of my head, but it's a hymn you should listen to. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Um, there, there's, there's, some, there's some controversy to that because they say, well, if you're a real Christian, you don't wander. And, and in an ultimate sense, that's true. You, you, what you've gained in Christ, you never lose. We, I preached to you about that just a couple weeks ago. However, a Christian is someone who also is intuitively aware that their flesh is still fallen, that you still think lustful thoughts, that you still have murderous thoughts in your heart for other people, that you're still angry, and that you're still, uh, and in many ways, still a wicked sinner, a wicked sinner who's in progress and growing, definitely, but a sinner nonetheless. And this is why the good news of Jesus Christ makes all the difference, because when we realize we have an atonement for sin, and we look at our sin without lying and saying, this is terrible, we realize that much more how precious and how awesome Jesus is. That's why we should be excited about that. Number two, though, he, not only that, he's also the son of God. This is a term and a phrase about who Jesus is that really doesn't show up a whole lot in the Old Testament. You don't see a lot of phrases for this is going to be the son of God. You see son of man, Daniel chapter 7. We'll talk about that eventually. Daniel chapter 7, that's Jesus' favorite term for himself. But son of God is a lot less frequent. It really becomes a lot more significant in the New Testament, starting with his baptism. When Jesus is baptized, and we'll talk about that one today, but him being the Son of God means that he is uniquely qualified to draw us close to his Father. He is unique in that he is the 
singular son of God and not a son of God, not in a general sense. He is the one whom God put forth to be our mediator. There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. That's why he's special. He's not just a kind of uh, heavenly being. He's the son of God, the one who goes between on our behalf to make us, uh, to make us right with the Father. In Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, I told you there's two quotes in there. Even though Mark says it's one quote, he says, the prophet Isaiah said. Now, here's what you need to know. When he says the prophet Isaiah, he's taking two quotes, Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40, and he's putting them under the same banner of Isaiah. Did he make a mistake? No. What he's doing is a very common and accepted practice of attributing to one person who is the major prophet, the, the minor and the major. So he's just kind of lumping them all together. It'd be akin to me saying, uh, you know, the... The music industry says, and I fill in the blank, even though it was a specific person, or maybe there's a plurality of persons who said certain things, and I'm putting it all together, the music industry said, or CNN says, or Fox News, or something like that. That's kind of what's happening here. He's not misquoting Malachi. He's just kind of giving a broad stroke, this prophet says. Okay, so with that said, Malachi 3 says, behold, I send a messenger before your face, John the Baptist, who will prepare your way? Okay, now verse 3 is when he transitions to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And what I want to show you is the full text. And this will make a lot more sense to you now. Take a look. Here's what Mark is, Mark is quoting. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the... Who is that? Lord, which is... What's the translation? Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Yahweh Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, and the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What he's un, like, unequivocally saying, even though he's not saying it as boldly as we would, is that Jesus is a special person. Not only is he Messiah and Son of God, he is God in the flesh. Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for. Yes, he's the Messiah, but he's special. He's no ordinary man. He is, in fact, God incarnate, God who put flesh on himself. This is one of the most attacked doctrines that we hold to, and it's what most people get wrong about Christ. Uh, the, the Mormons think that Christ is not the God, he's a God, and he's also the spirit brother of Lucifer. The Jehovah's Witnesses think that Jesus is actually the archangel Michael. Uh, the, 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 the Muslims think that Jesus is a prophet, but not certainly the prophet, and not definitely the son of God. Allah has no son, is what they would say. Really, the, the misunderstandings about who Christ is has gone back way to the earliest parts of when Jesus arrived. In fact, there's several false teachings about Christ, like Apollinarianism, which thinks that Jesus' body was simply wedded to a divine spirit and a divine mind. So he had the same physical body, but when it came to his thoughts and his soul, that was the divine part of him. That means there's two parts of Jesus. There's the divine part and there's the human part put together. Nestorianism taught that there was two uh, persons, which is a little closer to what we kind of sort of believe, but one that that's a human person and one that's a divine person. Jesus had two separate natures in his body, which is, which is a complication. It's a distortion of what we truly understand. And the more you think about it, the more you might ask yourself, well, what do we believe about Christ? And how does that make sense? How is he the God and man thing? How does that work together? You and I have the privilege of looking back on people who have studied this before and have given us texts. Well, that makes a, lot of, makes a lot of sense. We understand that. But it comes at great cost. Another one is monophysitism, which essentially says that the, the divine nature and the human nature mixed up and became a new nature. Um, say monophysitism. 
great. Use that at your next party. People will be like, you're so smart. Monophysitism. <sighs> you're seeing it now? <laughs> Write it down. Uh, so essentially, the, the two parts come together. Um, the, 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 the divine nature, the human nature are mixed and blended and become a new thing. Monophysitism. Really what we hold to as Christians is what is called Chalcedonian Christology. You might, uh, what I would encourage you to look up is the Athanasian Creed. When you have time, go home, look it up, read that. But essentially what it teaches is that though Jesus is a, a distinct second person of the Trinity, his human nature and his, his, his divine nature were distinct and yet fully together. So we would say that, you know, we would call this the hypostatic union. And the idea is that Jesus is both fully God and fully man together. The two natures are not wed. They're not mixed and mingled. They're two natures under one person, namely the person of Jesus Christ, one being, hypostatic union. So when it comes to thinking about who Jesus is, it really helps to step back and say, really, when I think about him, I should be excited because he's no mere mortal. He's no ordinary man. He's my Messiah. He's the one who is God and the flesh, who would be the son of God, sacrifice on my behalf. Mark starts, Mark starts off really strong about who Jesus is. He leaves you with no uncertainty. He wants to start off on the very front of his book with who he is and why you should follow him. He front loads it. In verses 2 and 3, he tells you how Jesus' ministry began. Oops. Um, don't think. Yeah, no, that's right. Okay, here we go. Uh, he tells you how Jesus' ministry began. Uh, looking here in verses 4 through 8, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Remember, he's the messenger who's going before the Messiah. His job is to say, hey, guys, the Messiah is coming. You need to prepare. Well, how do we prepare, John? You repent. Baptize, getting baptized in the wilderness to prove that you are contrite, humble, and ready to receive your Messiah. So he's calling people to repentance. And, and by the way, he's very popular with this. He starts getting people from all over the country coming to him in his baptism in the Jordan River. And in fact, you might remember that uh, later on in Jesus' ministry, when the Pharisees and the Sadducees are challenging him, he says, well, the baptism of John then, was it from heaven or was it from man? He's talking about this event where John's about to baptize Jesus. But John's ministry is a popular one. Everyone knows about him. He's like the, 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 the traveling evangelist that everybody in town's talking about. Could this be the Messiah? Some of them would say. He had to make clear that he himself was not the one who was predicted, the, the, the Messiah. He was just the one pointing the Messiah. So, all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I. There's someone beyond me who's way more powerful than I am, and he's so powerful and so exalted and so lofty that I can't even touch his sandals. I shouldn't even touch his feet because he's way more worthy than I am. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John is painting a picture of a monarch, a king, a ruler, a more powerful person than he, who he wants you to sense is far greater than himself and any one of us. Point number two, we ought to feel the awestruck wonder and the majesty of Jesus. Feel awestruck at his majesty. When John talks about Jesus, he's not neutral. He doesn't, he doesn't present Jesus as just a figure that you can relate to or not. You should think about talking to Jesus. You should think about surrendering to him. No, he talks about him as the ruling and reigning king who's arriving. He's the forerunner after all. A forerunner would come and tell people, make way 
for Prince Ali. No, different, right? <laughs> Make way. There's a, in a movie, you see the, the, what's his name? The genie goes and presents this whole cavalcade of, of dancers and camels and lions and all that to, to show that, hey, the king, or actually Prince Ali's coming. In this case, John, a lot more humble, of course, is saying, Make way. The king is coming. Prepare for him. He's so much higher than I. He's so much more greater than I. I shouldn't even touch his feet. Feel awestruck at his majesty. Awe is an awesome, awesome, awe, awe is great. When we feel it, we know it, right? We know when we feel awe. I tend to feel awe at moments when I'm looking at the majesty of nature, the handiwork of God himself. I went to Big Bear. This is an actual picture that I took. And it's not, I'm not a photographer, so don't criticize me for this. I know it's just trees. But I looked at that, and when I saw that, I thought, man, that's incredible. The, the beauty and the majesty of all the, the hills and the greenery and the trees, and they're so tall, and the life. And then I went to, we went to Palm Springs, it was 121 there when you went. It was the hottest weather I've ever been in. Uh, but even, even the desert has some pretty cool scenery. And I saw a certain part of the desert. I'm like, that's really beautiful. That's really cool. I felt a sense of awe and wonder. And when we feel awe, what do we do? Most of us try to take a picture of it, right? Um, and then when we look at it and say, that doesn't quite capture what I was trying to convey. Awe, ought to, uh, awe requires a response. Oh, that's true for all of us. Awe requires a response. Often, when you feel awe about another person, the response is that, wow, they are amazing. Suddenly, they become the most beautiful person in the world because you're awed by them. Awe requires a response. In John's economy, John has, he, he wants you to feel a sense of awe for the coming and ruling Messiah, but he also has a response in mind too. So let's talk about awe and the right response to who Jesus is. Thank you. Thank you. Saturday night, struggle a little bit with that one. Oh, I don't get it. <laughs> Let's talk about awe. First and foremost, John wants you to re repent and confess. John appeared in the wilderness, baptizing, proclaiming a baptism of repentance. That is to say that John realizes, as, all, as should all of us, that we are all sinners. We're not good enough for the king. Uh, they sinned and they needed a savior, as is true for us. He's calling them to be prepared to receive their king and Messiah. Now, you may not be in, a, in the wilderness. You may not be in first century Jerusalem. But here's what I do know about you. And here's what I do know about me. Let's, let's, let's take a moment to be real for a second and realize that when it comes to Jesus, the thought of who he is and his glory and his majesty, you and I, no one in this room would ever say, I love Jesus enough. I'm excited about Jesus enough. He is, he's everything to me and I, I can grow no more in my walk with, with God and how I love him. I mean, right? No one's going to say here like, yeah, I, I, I've arrived. I've achieved the level of godliness that I'll stop growing. And in fact, the, the challenge with a, with a church like this is that when you get to a certain place of knowledge, your knowledge deludes you. You feel like, well, I'm mature because I have knowledge. Now, knowledge is required for maturity, but knowledge does not equal maturity. You see, the way that God works with us is certainly not from a place of just having enough head knowledge. 1 Corinthians 13 says knowledge, what? Puffs up. God works with us by saying the maturity comes from bring, uh, being aware of the knowledge, but letting that affect your heart and tenderizing you, making you aware of your sin so that you can rightly respond to the glory of God. So are you aware of the sin in your life? Here's what sin does to you. You, can, you come to church, and one of the things that happens as a Christian, if you come to church and you've got sin weighing you down, worship is boring. Preaching is no longer enjoyable. Unless there's a nugget of interest, like, oh, that was novel. That's an interesting thought. Uh, the Christian life becomes hard 
It becomes like, it's like taking a normal Honda Civic and trying to run it through a, a place that requires four-wheel drive. You're kind of spinning your wheels going nowhere. That's how the Christian life works when you don't have an ongoing life of awareness of, I'm a sinner, I need to repent and confess and realize who God is. Repentance and confession is like, uh, if, you, if you have mud on your windshield, repentance and confession is like wiping it clean so that you can see through again and see the full glory of God. John is essentially saying to his people, your king is coming. Humble yourself, prepare yourself by, by confessing your sin and forsaking it so that you can truly see who Jesus is. And in fact, the Pharisees and the religious leaders struggled with this because they thought they'd arrived. Jesus said, I, I'm not here to heal the healthy, right? I'm here for the sick. I'm here for those who, who are aware of their sickness. The, the Pharisees saw that they had arrived. They, their phylacteries were broad. They had the, all the standing and the religious air about themselves. And they saw themselves as no longer needing a savior, certainly not Jesus. That's your temptation and mine too, where we think we've arrived. I know enough. I'm mature enough. I don't need Jesus anymore. You've lost your sense of dependency. And thus, you've lost your sense to say, Lord, I am so broken. Forgive me for my lust, my anger, my pride. Forgive me for my lack of sensitivity when your word is preached. Forgive me for not singing and meaning it. Forgive me for having an air of righteousness, but not the reality of it. John calls us to repentance. He calls us to realize that to understand who Jesus is, to capture the awe and wonder of who Jesus is, requires that the eyes of our heart be enlightened by God and realization of our sin, confessing that. If you want to see Christ clearly, if you want this series to rock your world, as I'm sure it will, you've got to be willing to confront your sin and realize that even though you're a Christian, you might have been a Christian since who knows how long you got saved now, there's still room in your life to confess and repent of selfishness, of anger, of pride, of gossip, of slander, of dishonoring your parents, of a million different things, if you're aware of it. That kind of sensitivity only comes when you read the scriptures like a child. John's description is that he wore a, a hairy cloak and a leather belt. Now, Bible grads who went to Sunday school, call it out. Who's he looking like in this story? Anybody? I heard someone whisper it. Say it loudly. Oh, you don't want to say it loudly, whoever whispered? Okay. John is meant to remind you of a very well-known prophet. He was called the prophet Elijah. Elijah wore the hairy cloak and the leather belt Elijah had the reputation for being God's anointed prophet. In fact, Elijah made that the prophet's attire. Um, if you wanted to be known as a prophet, you would wear a hairy cloak and make people know, this is who I am. But in this case, um, uh, John, is, uh, John is describing himself, or he's making it clear, I'm a prophet after the, the, the way of Elijah. The, and in fact, in the, at the end of Malachi, at the end of the book of Malachi, there's a prediction. When the, when the Messiah is coming, I'm going to send Elijah before you. And you remember, John is asked, are you Elijah? John said, no. He said, no, I'm not. But Jesus said, yes. You know what? Let me, let me, okay. Some of you guys may not know how to reconcile that. John said he's not Elijah. Jesus said he is. What's going on here? Does John not know something? John doesn't know a lot of things that Jesus knows, but <laughs> what's going on there? I'm going to let you think about that. John said, I'm not Elijah. Jesus said he was. Is that a contradiction in the Bible? I wonder. Think about that. Reading the scriptures like a child is what allows us to see with eyes of faith the wonder and glory of Christ. 
But more often, though, what we're finding is that people don't read their Bibles all too much, and I don't know what that's like in here at Compass Bible Church. I suspect that the, the average is higher for us. Uh, but according to this study, um, 35% of adults who would confess Christ in one way or another um, read their Bible at least once a week, but the rest, the, 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 the larger percentage of people don't. Um, when it comes to different people groups or different religious groups, you can see the statistics of who reads their scriptures versus who don't. Um, you can look at the Mormons, 70. The, the highest percentage goes to the Jehovah's Witnesses. They read their religious texts far more than any other religious group, according to those who were, who were studied and researched. And even though we have a good feeling about the Bible, we often don't like to read it. Um, 20% of Christians have read their Bible at least once in its entirety um, or more. That means that eight out of every 10 Christians in av on average uh, read their Bible selectively, read different portions, but don't have the discipline or the willingness to read all of the, the Word of God. If we want to capture wonder and, and see who Christ is, uh, if, and, and if we're going to see Mark chapter 1 and read, oh man, John is Elijah. John is coming in the spirit of Elijah. You have to have a good sense of the whole. You're reading, reading the Gospel of Mark is like reading or watching the last Lord of the Rings movie, which is terrible. Just kidding. If you watch the last movie, you might find it to be, oh, that's good. I like that. It wasn't as great as everyone said it was, but it was good. If you really want to appreciate the last Lord of the Rings movie, you have to read or watch the first three movies, right? Same thing is true with any series, with any trilogy. The gospel doesn't come in the middle of nowhere as if it's to say, this stands all by itself. It comes with history, with gravity, which means that when you're reading scriptures, you have to see that God is creating a story, a narrative that you and I get to be part of that he's trying to invite you into. Reading the scriptures like a child allows us to see what God is doing. Lastly, if we really want to capture the awe of knowing who Jesus is, that means that we have to reflect to think about, to, to cogitate, to meditate upon who Jesus actually is. John says, after me comes he who is mightier than I. He's making a plea to, his, to Jesus' strength and his power. He's mightier. He's stronger than I. And he's so exalted, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Not even Hebrew slaves would unstrap sandals, according to, to some of the histor historical documents that surround this time. It was even beneath their, their, uh, their job, their, uh, their job description. John says, I'm lower than a slave when it comes to Jesus' sandal strap. The modern day equivalent might be, I forbid you from changing my baby girl's diaper. Her boo-boo is better than you. <laughs> You're not worthy to touch her boo-boo. You know that kind of thing? That's, John is saying, Jesus is much more exalted than I. I can't even touch his sandal strap. But really, if you want to get a sense of what this looks like, you could go back and read Revelation chapter 5. And look at some of the exalted language. This is the end of the game, right? This is the end of all time being wrapped up. It talks about Jesus like this. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures around the throne all said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. 
This is the kind of picture in your mind that you need to think about when it comes to realizing who Jesus is. John wraps it up and he says, basically, if you want to know for a fact who this guy is as VIP, let me just show you how his baptism went. And, and, and verses 9 through 11 it says, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. So several miles out, you see number 11. That's Nazareth of Galilee. He moves over to the, to the Jordan, somewhere up or down the Jordan. John was all over the place. So we don't know exactly where that took place, but it's in the Jordan. Jesus comes to him. Oh, you're reading it now. Great. Okay. <laughs> um, chapter 1, verse, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately, euthus, this is the word that he uses 42 more times in the gospel to move it along, immediately he saw heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is the inaugural event of Jesus' life and ministry. Now think about this for a second. If you're at the Jordan and you just got baptized by John, you see Jesus coming. John says, that's him. I'm the one who's pointing to that guy. You see him, he gets in the water, and suddenly you see John baptize him. And then, like, there, I don't know what this looks like, but boom, something in the sky shows you that there's, there's a, a special thing happening. Boom, something opens up. The heavens are torn open. And you see something lighting on Jesus like a dove. That means gentleness. It's, a, it's not like a force. It's not a thunderbolt. It's something alighting on Jesus gently. And then, as if that weren't enough, that enough would be like, oh, that's interesting. But the next thing, there's an audible voice from heaven. I would imagine that this would shake the very ground people are standing on as they hear the voice from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Unqualified acceptance and love for the son. If you were there, and if you were in, so it's 2019, you were there 2019, you'd be recording it, you'd be sending it all over the place because people would need to know about this. In the same way, the first century believers and unbelievers at that point were telling everybody. It became an event. This is God's way of saying, this special guy is more than a guy. He, in fact, is the second person of the Trinity. The entire Godhead is at work for your salvation. That ought to bring marvel to your eyes and ears and hearts. Not the franchise. Marvel as in uh, adoration, excitement, awestruck wonder, another way to put that. Jesus is empowered by the Spirit, accepted and approved by the Father to accomplish the work of what? Your salvation on the cross. Dying for your sin. The whole Trinity, the entire Godhead is at work for your good. We have so much more to say about this, and we're going to talk a lot more about who Jesus is and the fact that the Trinity is revealed in the Gospel of Mark. This is one of the best places to talk about that, by the way. The reason all of this matters is because your theology matters. The reason all of this matters is because what you believe about Jesus will impact every other facet of your life. Where you work, the kind of person you date, the way that you study, the way that you live, the kind of car you buy, the kind of food you eat or don't eat, everything about your life will be impacted by Jesus if you believe who he says he is. If you, don't, if you don't accept that, that's going to have a massive impact as well. In fact, I can, all, I can, I can just take you back to 1978. I could, I could choose a, a more recent example, but this was a good one. In 1978, there was a culmination of several years of a leader by the name of Jim Jones. Have you heard of this guy before? 
Jim Jones ran a cult. He started out as a Protestant preacher of sorts. Of course, at one point in his ministry, he said, um, he said the, the, the young preacher threw down his Bible to the floor and yelled at his associates, too many people are looking at this instead of looking at me. So pretty early in his life, he, he used this as his charade to get people to follow him. But then he's like, all right, let's put this down and let's now let's look at me. Jim Jones moved uh, several people around different places. He ended up in San Francisco, had a great calling. He, he, he uh, erected what is called the People's Temple. Eventually, um, this guy takes about 1,000 people to South America, and he builds a compound called Jonestown. This is in Guyana. Um, I think Netflix has a doc. I, don't, I haven't seen the, net, the documentary, so I'm not endorsing it by any stretch, but Netflix has a documentary about him. If you look up Jonestown on YouTube, you'll see a million different other documentaries about this guy. But he takes him to South America. And of course, as any cult leader would, he abuses them and he uses them. And there's a bunch of stuff that's salacious that I don't need to bring up. That's not my point. He gets all these people excited about him. He says, if you call me your friend, I'll be your friend. If you call me your father, I'll be your father. If you call me God, I'll be your God. This guy was nuts. Of course, when you divorce people from the anchor of Scripture, you can say whatever you want to say. There's always going to be people that want to believe that. Came to a head in 78, November, when his compound was being, was being I don't want to say raided, it was being inspected by a senator or some kind of government official, brought a bunch of people that had family and friends who were at this compound that they were desperate to bring home. They heard about the way that Jim Jones led the, led the group. They, they knew that he was a leader that was abusive, and so they wanted to bring their family home. Anyhow, they get there, and all, all of it hits the fan. Jim Jones goes bonkers, and he does something that you probably have read about in your history books or will read about at some point in time when you look at world religions and different cult groups. He has them drink cyanide-laced punch, which, of course, suffocates them, and they all commit mass suicide. I told you there's about 1,000 people there. 300, about 300 of those people were children. Children didn't want to. Some children refused to drink the punch for whatever reason, and so they injected them, Jones and all of his cohorts. The act of mass suicide was broadcast all around the world, and Jim Jones became a public figure that everyone knew about, and they said, how, this, how could this possibly happen? How could, how could he have so much of a, an abusive relationship with him? How could people do this? How could they be so deceived? And really, the answer is easy in some sense. It's difficult in another, obviously, but it's easy when you untether yourself to the Word of God. You see, theology matters. What you believe about life and about God matters infinitely. That's what this series really is all about. Service and sacrifice is looking at King Jesus and realizing how much this matters to us. As we wrap up today's sermon, I would invite you to make sure that your friends are coming to this. This is a series to invite everybody to. This is for Christians and non. We get to talk about King Jesus and get excited about who he is. Let's pray.